And C, it's called bridesmaids. Like nobody, what appeal does that? Even if you're a woman and you know what that means, you don't like being a bridesmaid. I mean, nobody likes being a bridesmaid. So there was nothing appealing about that. And it really took uh, a lot of work to just get it going, to get a table read that would be sponsored by the studio. And, you know, like really it was, it was not easy. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. No matter what you do or where you are in your life right now, I'm pretty sure you've heard the word no more than once. And some of those no's might make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. This podcast is here to tell you, you're not alone. If all these people can walk through the valley of no's to get to their yes, why can't you? Hello and welcome. If you're new, thanks for joining me. If you're a regular, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with 10,000 No's. I know some of you are here through 10,000nos.com, but if you're not already subscribed on iTunes or Spotify, that's the best way to make sure you get these episodes automatically downloaded to your device when they're released every Friday. Um, This podcast is built on word of mouth, so if you like what you hear, don't keep it to yourself. Tell people about it so it has the biggest reach possible. The whole point is to encourage other people to keep on going. So If you can leave a a quick iTunes review with a five-star rating on the Apple Podcast app, that helps a lot. Only takes a minute or so. Okay, here we go. We got Nikki Weinstock. Nikki runs Red Hour Films with Ben Stiller. Before that, he ran Judd Apatow's company, but he began in the publishing world. He's written a nonfiction book, two novels, many articles and essays for important publications like the New York Times Magazine, NPR, among others. In his 20s, Nikki worked closely with media giants Rupert Murdoch and Peter Chernin writing their speeches. And then on Chernin's advice, he left for L.A. to have a more creative job, served as a vice president of development for 20th Century Fox Television. He developed, uh, helped to launch a bunch of TV series there, uh, including How I Met Your Mother. He ran Apatow Productions with Judd, oversaw a ton of great movies, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Pineapple Express, many others that you'd know. He shares a great story with me about Bridesmaids, how he worked with Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of her name, um, to shape and condense their screenplay. And after teaming back up with Chernin, Nicky founded his own company and eventually merged it with Ben Stiller to run Red Hour Films, where he is now. All accomplishments aside, this guy's a good human being. The success has not gone to his head. I hope you dig our conversation as much as I do. Nikki Weinstock. So what uh what are some of the things you said it's been it's been crazy? What's so yeah, we have we are simultaneously editing that beast of an event series for Showtime. Uh the, Is that one, the one about with Benicio? The, yes, with Benicio del Toro and Paul Dano and Patricia. How many Arquette. episodes is that? Uh... That's eight episodes. Okay. Ben uh directed all eight episodes. Uh, and it will be on the air, uh, in November. It's 460 hours of footage for those eight hours. Uh, it is, uh, a crew of hundreds and, you know, it's just one of those monster. Is it like a prison? What's the deal? It's, uh, it's, it's basically, um, about the 2015 prison break that happened in upstate New York, where two guys got out. They were in a bizarre love triangle with a female yeah, guard. Yeah, I remember. She was slipping them tools and helping them in return for which they were going to murder her husband on the outside. So it is just a twisted soap operatic drama. It sounds but awesome. It's really, it's really like a seventies movie. It's a, it's like a, you know, Dog Day Afternoon, Scarface, you know, gritty uh, kind of throwback, but all based on the police report um, that came out about this. So all factual. Um, ben has been just meticulous about recreating. It, we used some of the guards who were really the guards in that prison. Uh, we used a lot of ex-cons as actors. Uh, 
made an entire three-story prison uh, that we built on a soundstage. Uh, on the East Coast? Yeah, on the East Coast in okay. New York. Um, that was, you know, done down to the last detail. So much so that we had a couple of prisoners, uh, former prisoners who were acting with us as extras, and they walked onto the set and walked off. Couldn't take it psychologically. It was exactly what they remembered from serving time. So uh, anyway, it's really wild. It sounds really wild. very much up my alley. Yeah. And Benicio really is one of the inmates. So Benicio and, and Paul, Paul Dano are the, the two convicts. Patricia Arquette gained 50 pounds for the role and has transformed herself to be this female, you know, the head of the sewing shop where a lot of this stuff went down. Uh, who was having sex with both of them in the supply closet and uh, really uh, twisted stuff. That that sounds kind of amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. So anyway, yeah, we're congrats. editing. Ben is editing that madly as we speak uh, while we are staffing a new show that's going to be uh, a series. It's going to be on the CW. Uh, based on, based inspired loosely by the real uh, woman, a uh, blind woman who runs Guide Dogs of America. So we've done a very experimental series. We have a bunch of blind actors and guide dogs all over the production and uh, really? scripts and braille and, you know, really a wild uh, sort of uh, innovative thing. Um, anyway, so that's a, a drama, sort of a murder mystery featuring an unconventional blind woman who's and are you do you feel like i mean you go on showtime and cw seems like two different places radically they, radically yeah. Yeah. i mean i would imagine showtime there's a lot more uh freedom i'm guessing but maybe nowadays even at cw you're kind of getting that um free it seems more and more one of the things i want to talk to you about is how yeah. you and i met which i'm not even sure you remember but just how the landscape is changing and now you don't know, you know, if you get a script, you just take the script for, for what it is because everybody is kind of pushing the envelope a little bit more than yes. it used to be. That's been the, you know, when I started 13 years ago, I believe, in television, when I first moved to Los Angeles, um, it was almost the opposite of what it is now as a as a development sales business, which is... It used to be that when you came up with a television idea or a writer came up with a television idea, uh, your first question and the network's first question, the marketplace's first question was, how big can you make this? How many people can you appeal to? Oh, shit, we forgot a teenage character. Let's put a teenager in it. Yeah. Oh, do we have something for the older generation? Do we have something for women? It's this big tent thinking uh, that has almost completely inverted right now in the world of cable streaming modern television where that's not the question now. The question is, how deep and specific can you go? It's almost the opposite question yeah. of, we don't need to appeal to everyone. Let's just make the show as smart and daring uh, and unique as it possibly can be. So that's very liberating. It's challenging. It's a high bar. You know, you can't just, you can't do a sitcom about a family who has annoying neighbors right now. Like nobody knows what that is anymore. What's yeah. the point of that? Right. Things have to really have a point. So that's, that's a challenge, but it's a great creative challenge and people are really rising to it. Yeah. Um, if you have that full creative commitment, you could do a show about virtually anything right now. You know, if you happen to have grown up among Dutch nuns, uh, there is a Dutch nun show that you can do on Netflix if you execute it well enough. Um, uh, as opposed to, you know, that used to be an instant rejection. Wait a minute. I don't know that. You know, network executives would sit across from you and be like, I've never heard of that. We're not doing that show. Yeah. Now, if you've never heard of it, that's actually a powerful appeal. Yeah. It's so much show, so that I, I feel like there are so many shows out there that I have yet to see mm -hmm. that I have on my list because there's so much material out there that's great. Yeah. And I keep hearing, you know, you have conversations with people, you're on a set and people are talking about things and, and it, it seems like they're all over the place and yeah. it's hard to keep up with it, which I, I think is, is a good problem to have. I'd much rather have that problem than, you know, not enough being made that that's kind of 
um, exploring some things. So, totally. Now, yeah. I, you know, there's that famous quote recently where John Landgraf, the head of FX, who's a very smart guy, said, there's too much TV. The thread yeah. is that there's too much TV. I think he's an incredibly smart guy. I love what FX has done. Uh, I think that's stupid. Uh, I think there's not, I don't even know why we're even talking about too much TV. It's like saying there's too many books. Yeah. There's not too many books. There aren't too many shows. They're just, they've gotten more specific. Fewer people watch each of them. Yeah. It's not going to be like the finale of MASH where half the country tuned in. Um, it's gotten much more specific and there'll be shows that go out there. You know, there've been some shows that are so well executed. They're high priced. They have amazing auspices and six people watch them and then they go away. It's scary. You know, I remember watching a show called uh, Patriot on Amazon. Wait, that's the one. So that's so funny you brought it up. I just did Goliath and the guy in the food truck at Goliath was like, you got to watch Patriot. I still haven't seen it. Are you serious? He's like, you got to watch Patriot. It's the best show on Amazon. It's the best show on TV right now. It's dry. It's funny. It's so funny. Yeah, that's That's, exactly what I had in my mind. If it weren't for the food truck guy. That's gone? No, they're ma- I think they're making a new season. Steve Conrad. Okay, uh, okay. Was, that's so was, funny. You that is so funny, but that's, that's the, the point. Yeah, every if day it I weren't for the like, food see truck it? guy, you would have never heard of that goddamn show. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. I mean, whether it's, you know, perfect or, ex- but it's an excellent show. There's, there's no question about it. And that is the risk these days. Yeah. You know, we have an overabundance. But it's it's an exciting marketplace to be working in and just a f- exciting creative yeah. field to be working in where you can tell really individualistic stories. And it's really about just how hard and how well you work on them to yeah. make them great. Well, that kind of leads me to because I, I could sit here. I know you have time constraints. I have time constraints. I could I could get into this for a long time with you, but I want to get into you know, you and some of your trajectory and what you what you did in the past, how you got to where you are. And you're talking about hard work and smart work. And um, you've been very successful w- from where I'm sitting. I don't know if it feels that way on the inside. Never. But never, never feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's human so, nature. And what I didn't know when I met you originally was that I didn't know that you were a writer yourself, like an author of nonfiction book, what, two novels, you yeah. wrote essays for, I know I saw things about like NPR and New York Times Magazine, I think. And yeah, yeah wow. so prolific. What was your, did you go Harvard undergrad? Was I it? did, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And where'd you grow up, East Coast? Or? I grew up in New York City until I was uh, 10. And then we moved around in Connecticut and things, but I kind of hated Connecticut. So I was always sneaking back to New York and, yeah. uh, and really uh, came up there. My first job was at Spy Magazine, which uh, is now no longer in its previous form, but uh, was a humor magazine. One of my jobs was to ride on a moped uh, spying on Donald Trump, who was a real estate bozo uh, uh, that we had a point of pride on making fun of. We had running jokes about how small his hands were and all this stuff that has since uh, resurged. Um, but uh, it's amazing. Isn't that like, wild? If you, yeah. And just back then, what you, uh, it's a larger conversation, but yeah. Oh that's my amazing. God, can you imagine the yeah. time machine of that would be fascinating. Uh, so I worked there. Then I worked at Random House. I, um, were you on the publishing side of things? I, or I was on you? the publishing side. I was an editor okay. at um, Random House and then at uh, at Riverhead Books, which is another publishing. So house. that was my question. I saw yeah. both of those things, and I was wondering: Did you prior to that were you like with the Lampoon at Harvard? Were you writing? I at, wasn't. As a I, I have to be honest. I made kind of a hash of my undergraduate career. Uh, I and I'm friends with a lot of people who were on the Lampoon and. You know, had these gorgeous trajectories from Harvard to the Simpsons to whatever. Yeah. I was not that guy. Uh, I I didn't love Harvard. I, it was it felt very um, uh, what uh, polished, high 
uh, high aiming. I, I went to college to sort of figure out what, you wanted what I wanted to do. I thought that's why people went to college. I found a lot of people uh, in college had already decided what they wanted to be. And this was sort of a stepping stone on their way to be, you know, governor of, you know, a state, whatever it was. So um, I, uh, I ended up uh, traveling a lot. I lived in Africa a lot during college. Uh, so Ghana and Tanzania and Kenya and really? Botswana. And, and studied, yeah. studied while you studied. were there? Studied. I, yeah. I became an anthropology major and, uh, you know, uh, did field work and, and did a lot of literature. I was always a, into writing, so I would yeah. write, you know, things. So you were writing at that point? I was, even in, in for, college. For yourself? Yeah. Like, you weren't published yet, but you were- I wasn't. Of, I wasn't yeah. published yet. My sen- The equivalent of my senior thesis, because of all my traveling, I lived in Italy for seven months at one point and Whereabouts? just got a job in Bologna in okay. Northern Italy. Okay. My job was to be a bouncer in a punk rock club. It was the only job I could find where I didn't need uh, papers uh, and got the crap beaten out of me my second night on the job. And uh, it was a very druggy, druggy club. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was literally all over the map such that um, I was in the five-year club at Harvard, which was not a very popular club um, and uh, ended up graduating a year late and uh, and didn't have great connection. You know, it wasn't yeah. a Harvard network experience. <laughs> uh, I was not on the Lampoon. I wrote, you know, poetry for the stodgy, nerdy literary magazine and that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, and never intended to be in Los Angeles. I didn't know anything about Los so, Angeles. So when you went to work for say Random House, was it kind of like, uh, let me see what they're looking for kind of thing. And I'm going to write and, and I'm going to eventually get my writing out there. Or was it just, oh, maybe I'll go to that side. And That's I'll a good publish. question. It was both. I just yeah. really loved writing. I liked being on all sides of the desk. I liked my own weird writing. I liked helping people with writing. Um, my mom was on the staff of the New Yorker magazine for 20 years. And so I grew up in that okay, New so, York, yeah. you know, sort of Woody Allen, New York, yeah. uh, without the molestation, hopefully. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was that, so that felt like my world. I yeah. knew, I knew that. Um, and, uh, but to your point, I reached a, a sort of breaking point only because I was constantly writing my own stuff, even while I was editing at Random House and then at Riverhead Books. And then, uh, God, there was something that tipped the balance. Oh, I think I I wrote uh, something for the New York Times magazine and everyone at work was sort of weirded out. Were like, they mad? I just, like, why are you- yeah, I, a little mad. It was a little sort of- the Or shark. were they surprised? Like, oh, you can write. It was both. Yeah. There was a little feeling of like the sharks and the jets or something. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, you are you a, are you a writer? Yeah. Uh, and one of them. So one of them. So I left after that and uh, I uh, wrote a book- uh, first, uh, a nonfiction book, as you said, about uh, mothers and sons and the relationship between them. I had two brothers and no sisters. I was sort of fascinated with how my mom dealt with all these guys in the house and yeah. uh, wrote that book called The Secret Love of Sons. How and old were you at this point? 20s, mid 20s? So young. I look at my. Like, do you look phone. back at that and go, like, man, what did he know about 100%. writing about mothers and sons? Yeah, about, like yeah. this first person analysis, you know. I mean, in my defense, I was, you know, not pretending to be a PhD. It was a sort yeah. of personal essay. But 100%, I look at the author photo, I'm like, why would anyone buy a book from this kid? <laughs> I think I was 22. 22, um, wow. Yeah, something like that. Well, I uh, like that. I mean, that's. That takes, that's a certain, you know, I admire that, the personality just to go write it and go not, not worry at that point. I'm always fascinated when I, my, my son is reading these books by the kid that I just realized is in Glee, Chris Colfer. Oh, yeah. I and know he's, Chris a little bit. He's yeah. written like, he's so written I looked these, at the back like of the book. sci-fi, he has a big following. He's got like, yeah, all the kids in, in my son's school have read, yeah. there, there are like five books in this series and they're all relatively thick books. And, yeah. I, and I looked at the picture. I'm like, who is this? And I didn't, I didn't put it together 
because I didn't watch that show at the time. And then right. I realized it. And I'm like, my God, he's young. And I mean, he's, I guess he's not that young now, but he's pretty. He's, I had lunch with him and he was telling me about all this, everything he's managing. Oh, he's got he's like, like a, a volume he's of an work. empire. Yeah. 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 No, and I'm thought, really impressed by that. Yeah. But uh, you, the fact that you did that, you're 22 and you did that. And then, and then where did that lead you? you and then, then I wrote a novel next, uh, based on my time in publishing, actually, it was a little bit controversial at the time. Uh, it was kind of Devil Wears Prada a few that years the golden before hour? It, Devil it? Wears Prada. This was called As Long As She oh. Needs Me. Okay. And it was basically about an assistant, uh, to a diva publisher. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a fun romp through the book publishing world, which Funny to say, now in 2018, you look back, that was the halls of power at the time. I mean, now yeah. it seems silly, but uh, you know, places like Harper Collins and Random House felt like massive, powerful corporations. Yeah. Uh, so it was uh, basically about a guy who has to plan his boss's wedding. Um, uh, a comedic novel that you know there were a lot of people guessing who's he talking? Is he? T- talking about that head of the publishing company. It was, you know, yeah. that Devil Wears Prada fun. Yeah. Uh, and then I think while I was writing that book, um, I got married, met uh, my now wife, uh, who was uh, a playwright at the time. Um, and uh, we had a baby. We were living on the Lower East Side in New York in a barely reformed crack house, uh, had very little money. And, uh, one of us needed to get a day job to go with our funky writing lifestyles. So, um, I knew one guy, uh, this sounds like a fable, but, uh, there was a guy I used to play basketball with who, um, started George magazine with JFK Jr. as a political magazine. Um, guy named Gary Ginsburg, and I had seen him not long before, and he was wearing a pinstripe suit. And I literally called him when Amanda got pregnant, and I said, "What's the deal with that suit? I think I need one of those suits and one of those jobs that gets you a suit." And he said, "I work at News Corporation." And I said, "What's News Corporation?" He said, "It's a media company. It's Rupert Murdoch's media company." I said, "Well, I'm not sure I would work for." you know, Rupert Murdoch. I was sort of a jerky liberal novelist. And uh, he said, you know, don't be a jerk. Uh, Come on in. You know, you should meet Peter Chernin, who was his boss. Uh, So I ended up meeting with Peter and uh, talking to them. And Peter ended up hiring me um, uh, basically to be like writer in residence. It was a weird job, but be in charge of all the writing at the corporate headquarters in New York. Press releases, annual reports, you know, really boring business writing, but a pretty good day job for a guy who was trying to write novels and take care of a baby and all that. They have you listed as like a speechwriter for... Well, that's what happened. So I had been on the job not too long, a few months, I think. And Rupert, uh, the chairman of the company, was the only Westerner invited to address the newly elected Chinese party leadership. Uh, so they have, you know, for the, to sort of educate their new leaders, they have a business person come and talk about economics and industry. And Rupert was a guy that that term and um, News Corp had been looking to break into China and, you know, was sort of the great the great unknown. And um, so they were hoping the speech went really well and could help convince China to, that News Corp can uh, sort of be at the vanguard of building their companies. Um, So I wrote that speech. I just, you know, I was the writing guy. So they came to me and said, hey, would you write the speech for Rupert? So I sat with Rupert a bunch and we spent a lot of time together and I wrote this speech and it went really well. And News Corp started, you know, working with with China um, uh, in a new way. And uh, from that moment on, I, you were a main man. I wrote everything. <laughs> it was like Cyrano de Bergerac for uh, Rupert Murdoch. Uh, so yeah, so I wrote all his speeches and uh, Peter Chernin's speeches as well, and wow. uh, and did that um, for You're a the while. Second person now that I've spoken to, I, a friend of mine, Eli Addy. I don't know if you know Eli. Yeah. He's actually another Harvard guy. He wrote. I know him from The West Wing. Did he? Was he, he a speechwriter? Yeah, he wrote yeah. for Gore. But I, what I didn't know until I interviewed him on, on Ten Thousand Nose was that he 
was really young and he was in New York and he wrote something for Dinkins and he oh, really liked him. And, okay. and it's the same deal. It's like, I guess if you're, if you're a good speech writer, well, it's the, a if you really make him look weird good, job. like, yeah, keep, keep coming more. Yeah. More, it's know? a really weird job. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is when you, you know, can find a speech writer who works for you, you know, I think there's a, a uniqueness to it because it's sort of part therapist, Part, you know, well, writer. now that you say it, you guys have a similar, I think what it is, is you have to, obviously you have to be intelligent and a great communicator, but you also, what you both share, I don't know you as well as Eli, but, but is, is kind of a lack of ego confidence, mm. but, but not an ego that's because when you're the speechwriter, you're serving up yes. the candidate. Yeah. You're, you're sort you're, of a you're, vessel. I mean, I always viewed it like a creative writing assignment. You know, can I inhabit the character of, a, you know, 71-year-old conservative Australian media baron? Like, that's a great narrator cool. for a short really story. Cool you know? think about it. I really looked at it that way. So it all became sort of fun, I have to say. And yeah. I would pride myself. I had a little inside joke with myself where I would try and get, you know, Martin Luther King quotes in the opening of his speech and, you know, how, how much can I push him? Uh, and, uh, it was fun. I'd always be in the back of some media conference, you know, pumping my fist that, you know, I managed to quote Mahatma Gandhi in a Rupert Murdoch speech or something. And people didn't know it or it was like a credited quote? Or, it, it or did you slip of, it in kind of like Yeah, that? I'd slip it in a little bit. I mean, the fun part was I was surrounded by handlers at first because everyone was incredibly nervous about who's this guy writing these important speeches for And you're Rupert. still like in your 20s at this point. And I'm in my right? 20s yeah. and I'm sort of, you know, a Democrat and it, everything was weird about it. Yeah. Um, and then Rupert, to his credit... Uh, is not someone who likes a lot of handlers. He's a very straight shooter. And so it quickly became just him and me, uh, which was much more fun. And he's a very smart guy. And it was fascinating to talk to him. You know, I mean, I was in his office every morning talking about, you know, whatever we were doing. And he was, it was an amazing, it was like going to business school. It was an amazing education. I didn't know what a revenue stream was, uh, you know, it's from guy my, to learn from. <laughs> it's a good guy to learn from. Uh, there were a couple of funny and quickly sort of famous moments where I guess he was in a a plane, in his plane, flying across the country, flying somewhere, and he said to the people with him, who were his head lawyer and and a couple other of his key staff, said, uh, "Should I buy Random House?" You know, News Corp uh, already owned HarperCollins. So should I buy Random House and, you know, we can merge it with HarperCollins? And everyone said, Rupert, I don't know if we need to double down in publishing. Uh, And they talked about it. And then he said, uh, yeah, well, Nikki says that editors don't edit anymore. So I don't know why we'd be in that business. And everyone said some version of who the fuck is Nikki? (laughs) Uh, And my phone lit up and people are calling me. What are you advising Rupert Murdoch? That's awesome. So it was a wild... It was a wild time. He had also just <laughs> married uh, Wendy Dang Murdoch, who was in her 30s and didn't know a lot of people. And she was my age with, you know, or almost a little older with, uh, and same as my wife. So uh, we went on a lot of double dates and, you wow, know, vacations. And it was, it was a crazy experience. A wild chapter. And then without, you know, I don't have, you don't need to take me through. I know you've had kind of this, um, Pretty, I, I think, pretty cool trajectory, whether you think of it as as that, you know, you were comparing it to your Harvard classmates. But I I think, you, you know, you've worked for, you know, you're talking about Rupert Murdoch, but, you, you know, Judd Apatow, now Ben Stiller. Um, you, how did you make or when did you make that that switch? And we, we don't have to go through your whole resume because I'm no, sure, sure it's boring for you unless it's, it's not. not. Boring. But it's I just... love to get into like the, you know, also the underneath of like, where, you know, where things went awry if they did, if there were any times when you kind of, you know, did that come to a halt out of your control or did you make a choice at that point? Like, I don't want to really do this sure. anymore and I'm out. Sure. Uh, that one didn't. That was, but it was a weird jump. I mean, I I feel like I've had one of those lives that from the outside might look to to 
people like, wow, you're a chess master. You have <laughs> turned that relationship into that relationship. And, and it, there was so little mastery involved. It really was a lot of gut instincts and clumsy sidesteps. And, you know, like, like most lives, it's, it's, uh, it smooths out, you know, at, at in a retrospect or in then, an interview. Yeah. yeah. But, um, no, what that was, was, uh, my last couple books had been published by Harper which was owned by News Corporation. And so it was a little like what I was describing in publishing where everyone at work was sort of saying, wait a minute, are you writing? You know, these are that book that just came out was by you. And I had gotten to be friends with Peter Chernin and he was uh, a good uh, advisor and and ally. And I think we were at dinner or, or something. And he basically said, you don't want to write these crazy speeches for the rest of your life. Like you're pulling it off, but let's be honest, you know, that's not you. You're a creative guy and you like books and, you know, writing and um, you should move to LA. Uh, And all that was at corporate headquarters in New York. And um, he said, move to LA. You should work somewhere in the company that's creative out in LA. Peter spent more time in LA. Rupert spent more time in New York. Uh, and I was such a New Yorker that I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, LA, uh, it doesn't seem like me. And he sort of said, shut up and, and check it out. And, uh, so it was really luxurious. I got to interview with all these heads of the divisions out here and, and like the idiot that I was, I got to ask really stupid questions. Like, (laughs) what do you do here at 20th Century Fox? And, you know, when you say make movies, how do you do that? You know, and I think, uh, I was allowed to be an idiot because, you know, I'd come from, you know, the the boss. So, uh, so that was okay. I am pretty sure everyone who met with me basically, uh, was annoyed by me. I mean, who wants to meet with like the kid who's been working with Rupert? It sounds aggravating to me, but everyone was very nice about it. And I ended up going to 20th Century Fox TV. Uh, and I really liked it. I developed comedies, you know, uh, shows like How I Met Your Mother and stuff like that, half hour broadcast comedies. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I liked it for me. I mean, there was certainly some culture clash. Uh, I, I think people thought I was like a spy for Rupert for the first, you know, stretch. Yeah. Uh, it's Hollywood. So it, I was not warmly received by everyone. It's right. a very competitive thing. I remember my colleagues uh, wouldn't show me where the bathroom was for uh, the good first couple of weeks. It was that kind of, Great. you know, high minded, yeah. you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, I did that for a while. For me personally, um, the corporate side of development didn't feel right. It felt interesting. I liked working with the writers, but I was always like, wanted to be in on it before it was presented to me. You know, people would present me these polished pitches or send me their script. And I'd always think, well, why why'd you make that decision? And where'd this story come from? And what if you had gone a different way with it? So I felt like I wanted to be a little more on the creative side than, you know, wearing a Banana Republic suit. And Do you consider yourself more of like a, sorry to cut you out. Do you consider yourself more of a, are you, are you more comfortable creating your own material or do you like taking someone else's material and pulling something out of them that they might not realize is that I what's love what's that, that that you're describing yeah. I mean I still like you know the the feeling of of you know wrestling with the blank page and coming up with character ideas so I like you know the writing process from me as well not so much that uh, I have to say those years as a novelist um, were hard uh, of course and hard enough that I get a thrill anytime a writer has an idea that I never would have come up with. That is the most exciting thing to me is someone comes to me. If someone were to come to me with something that is a lot like something I would do, or it's a little like one of my books or something, that's not that exciting. When people are better than I am or just more interesting or have different life stories, I love that. I mean, it's, it's really exciting to sort of midwife 
that stuff. It's God knows it's easier, first of all, uh, and it's it's in a way a, a wilder ride than sweating it out alone in a room the way yeah. I used to do. Um, so I love it. I'm a weird hybrid cause I still write and you still do. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you next. I do. But for me, it's entered the hobby zone. It's a little like I'm building birdhouses or something at night. Yeah. Um, but it keeps me honest. I, I worry about, um, there's probably a better way to say this, uh, becoming an asshole. Um, you know, I think you spend your days giving notes and having these hour long sessions, you know, where you're holding forth on, you know, the merits of somebody's writing to them, uh, it does run the risk of you start to sort of believe your own bullshit at some point. Yeah. And it's a weird business we're in that's divided into these, you know, hour long meetings where you sit on a throne and someone else, you know, desperately pleads with you to do your, I, that, that is a weird thing. I got to tell you, and I'm, I'm going to say this so people listening can hear this because there's there's a reason I'm I'm sitting here with you and there's a reason I hounded you to sit down with you, which is you really do live by that because the way we met, not even sure if you remember it, but um, there was some show that you guys were. It was a web series. It wasn't even a, a big yeah. show. It was called like Key Exchange or something. Yeah, like that. low key, low key. Yeah, and my buddy Chris Messina, an audition came in for him. That's right. And he had just done a film that was very similar to it. The character was very similar. He goes, but this is kind of cool. It's kind of, so I read it. It was like a 15 page script and I liked it. And I thought I was, I was right for the the character. Yeah. And I just kind of, kind of just told my manager, kind of hounded her and just kept pecking at it. And I thought, ah, oh, they're not, even, they're not even going to see me. Then I finally, they, they set up a meeting with you and I didn't know you at the time. And I came here and this is a cool space and everything. And it's whatever. I thought, oh, they're going to they're going to placate me. They're going to, you know, just check it off the box. I'll be here for two minutes and I'll be gone. And you and I sat down in your office and we didn't even crack open the script. We, I honestly think we talked for an hour, hour and a half. I think so too. I remember And you were, you were, I was blown away by how, uh, exactly what you're describing of this kind of there's someone in the throne and there's somebody else coming in and pitching. There was none of that. You were just, it was like this right now. I mean, that's why I wanted to sit down with you because you were just like, Hey, let's shoot the shit and talk creatively about what are you up to and what are you thinking? And, 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 um, you really do have that. I really don't know you well besides that. And then emails we had back and forth and whatever, but you really do have that beginner's mind that I think that you're talking about that is kind of a, a humility that I'm imagining lends itself to, you know, one of the things just preparing to interview you is like Judd Apatow, when you were going to work for him and run his company, he said that, you know, Nikki's great because he writes, he, he understands writers, he knows how to talk to them, he empowers them. And that, that was exactly my experience of you mm-hmm. was I, I felt like I walked out of your office feeling like a million bucks. And that is definitely not always the case. And I would <laughs> say it's, it's, you know, more and more it, it's, you feel okay. But you know, when you first started, it was like, you'd feel terrible. Yeah, but yeah, a lot yeah. of times I feel like people, when you're in a position of going in, you're basically going in looking for something, people will make you feel like you're looking for something and you did not do that at all, yeah. which I really appreciate. Really thank you. I've thanked you before, but I thank you again. Oh, Just let people it. listening, you know, you, you hear someone who's done as much as Nikki's done and it, it's kind of cool to go like, all right, he's a good guy who's actually looking out for the best in people. Yeah. I feel like there's two things to that. One is it's probably in my nature. I like meeting smart people who want to talk about creative things. That's like, probably why I do this. So it's genuinely fun. And the truth is, the second thing is, even if you were a mercenary dick, that's the best way to get good work out of people. You know, even if you didn't care about being nice and you wanted to put on a face that would help get great product, that would be a good way to do it. So I like it for both reasons. I think, you know. It's smart business. Yeah, I think it's smart business. And I think creating friction, it just doesn't, 
do anyone any good. And you and I both know people who thrive on the friction, that it's a sort of hierarchical, you know, cage match. Um, and some people thrive to great success. Um, I don't, I don't, that's not my rocket fuel. You yeah. know, I really like the other stuff. Um, but, uh, and it has allowed me to travel in these great worlds. I'm really grateful. You know, I think if I were, uh, pompously holding forth to everyone I meet, you know, I probably wouldn't have, you know, gotten together with Judd and, and been able to work with, you know, these sort of big, smart, exciting personalities. Yeah. He, well, he's the same way. You know, I, I just watched, uh, not the whole thing, but the first episode of the, uh, the Gary Shandling. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that great? And it made me love Gary Shandling and yeah. made me love Judd. Yeah. And I just talked to him about it. I, I'm, just such a fan of that. And uh, knowing Judd, I was so impressed. And that's real. I mean, his Yeah, you could tell. It, it just feels so genuine. I also heard him, a friend of mine has a podcast and he came on and um, same way as you. Like he came in, they talked for two hours about his writing and they, they you know, joked around and they're in the comedy world. So they, yeah. they knew him. And, but just... Yeah, really seemed very honest and genuine. At least that's how he's either a great yeah. actor or he really is that. And I'm guessing that he really is. Yeah, that. No, 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 he really. And you is. can feel it in his his material. Yeah, you know that it's got a heart. Totally, um, totally. Yeah, that was uh, that was where he was just at the beginning of sort of figuring out. He had done Forty Year Old Virgin and Knocked Up and Superbad when we met, um, and I was still at 20th Century Fox, and he really wanted to produce more stuff and have kind of bigger functional company, not just stuff he directed and, and was fully behind. So, uh, that was, uh, that was what we did. And I, I came over to run that, which was much more exciting to me because it was creative and I was sitting on the other side. And you were you coming know. right from, at that point, coming right from Fox? Right from Fox. Okay, right so from it was like a breath Century of fresh air. So, you know, yeah. I got to take off the suit and, you yeah. know, be a, a real guy, um, which, uh, which was great. And we did Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Step Brothers and Pineapple Express and wow. Get Him to the Greek and Bridesmaids was the last movie I developed. What uh, a string of it. And now wait, okay, so you told me a story that first day about Bridesmaids being, when you saw it, it was great when you first had it, but it, I, I think it was, it really kind of came along. I, and I forget the specifics. It did. I don't really want to talk yeah. about that, but I remember you saying that was a really special experience. It so. was, it was, it was pretty wonderful. It was Kristen Wiig and her writing partner, Annie Mumolo. And yeah, it was about two years of just working in a void, just the three of us on that script. Uh, you know, it started as I think a 200 page, 190 page behemoth uh that That's was right. very personal to Kristen and Annie really the story of their friendship um from when Kristen got on SNL and was suddenly hanging out with fancy friends and Annie felt left behind and you know basically the plot of Bridesmaids yeah. um but uh yeah we worked on it together really closely and Kristen was on SNL so she would you know, work during her hiatuses and that kind of thing. And uh, what really was the, fun. What was the biggest thing to grapple with? Like where you, you know, when it came to you, where it was when it came to you and where it was the, the movie that we ended up seeing, what would you say were some of the, um, the lessons or the takeaways just from whether it's story structure or writing or less is more, because it sounds like you took a lot out of it. What did the script end up? I and mean, still, it's not a short movie. It's not a short movie. But it's not. Uh, no, that would know. have been, you know, yeah. uh, massive. So, um, so what did you find? Like, what it, What did you, um, was it tough for them to kill their darlings and take scenes out that might have been great standalone scenes that just didn't? It was more a, first of all, there were, logistical, you know, while, because that movie took so long to develop, while we were developing it, The Hangover came out. Originally, the bridesmaids all happened in Las Vegas. They went to a sort of bachelorette party in Las Vegas and went to strip clubs. And um, and then The Hangover came out and they went to Las Vegas, <laughs> which is why in Bridesmaids, you may notice, they are on a plane to Las Vegas, which gets diverted when Chris and Wig acts out in the uh, in the cockpit or in the the 
plane. Uh, so yes, yes, there was that challenge. Um, and then there was, it really was more a matter of finding set pieces and comedy and finding a balance between a very grounded, very real feeling story of a friendship and how can you go off the charts in fun ways that make a, a theater full of people laugh? Yeah. Um, you can cast and, Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, you can cast <laughs> Melissa McCarthy is a good step. Yeah. Um, but really finding, you know, which was kind of at the end of the process, finding things like the wedding dress, diarrhea but stuff. See that, and, but that's what, for me at least, that's what makes it what it was. I think when mm-hmm. when... I think when the comedy is just for comedy's sake, it can be funny. It can make you laugh, but it, it might not stick with you. Yeah, the way that movie has a stick to it. I think it's I because think. it there's feels like a, a little it like feels like a drama that's that's funny. I mean, yes. I don't know if I'd say it feels like, but it does. It, it has a real there's like, there's a pain in that movie. Yeah, there's like a, a sadness. It's hard to get to, but I think it's because it feels like life. Yeah, you know, life. I mean, if God forbid my father died today. I, there would be some dark joke I would make to my brother tonight. It, it, there, it, life is a mix of tragedy and comedy all the time. Yeah. And so I think if you can hit some of those, you know, colors and, and nuance in your in your work, it just starts to feel relevant. Some of my favorite parts of Bridesmaids, honestly, are like the two of them talking in a diner. Um, that just feels like, oh, these are friends talking about friendship in a way I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a funny thing about them making fun of blowjobs that felt like, oh, I haven't seen anyone say that before. And it's true. Yeah. Um, so that's, so is that something that, that kind of came to you with the material originally, or did you have to really challenge them and say, good, this is cool, but how could it be? How could it be more original? How could it be more you guys? How could it be more uh, just specific? Is that something? There is a lot of, yeah, those were were the conversations. Kristen and Annie had a pretty great sense of that. I can't credit myself with with teaching them much on that. And Judd has a great, you know, sort of barometer for when things are getting less real and wimping out in a way in the the writing of it. So I think between all of us, we got it there, but it's a really important, like, you know, I'm shooting a movie as we speak. I'm playing hooky today that is called Friendsgiving, and it's with Kat Dennings and Mullen Ackerman and uh, written and directed by a woman named Nicole Payone. And those are our conversations, just like Bridesmaids. Those are our conversations over and over again. What's the real thing? Yeah. What's the What's the real option? You know, it's very easy. We're all smart people living in Hollywood. So you go to like a movie place, like, oh, the movie should be. And sometimes that hits a false note. If, you're, if your litmus test is what's the human version, what would really happen? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's a tough road to hope, but it's really rewarding. I yeah. mean, I remember that was the process on Forgetting Sarah Marshall was you know, that was based on a real breakup story by Jason Siegel. And, you know, a lot of that process was, well, Jason, what really happened? Well, I cried on the floor. Okay, let's have the crying on the floor scene. Um, It's hard. It's hard psychologically. It's hard writing wise. It's hard to write that stuff. Um, But if you can, uh, if you can do that, that's really exciting. Yeah. And you talked about one thing that that is the you know kind of the recurring theme here is you're you're given something that feels like uh, a rejection or a failure and taking it kind of reframing and using it. I love the story of them that that it's actually in the movie going to Vegas and the plane <laughs> gets diverted. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, it was it's just hard. Like, I mean, I'll I'll be honest and go further with you, you know, that movie in historical hindsight looks like a natural, right? It's like we had done all these kind of dude-oriented movies, and then we did, you know, a female-oriented movie that had the same R-rated, you know, humor and whatever. Um, 
that is only in hindsight. At the time, I can't tell you how hard it was to get that movie made. made. And yeah. we had, I, I don't want to say carte blanche, but we had something close after a bunch of successful movies. And even and still, then, well, yeah. it was really viewed as why are you doing the girls movie? Like if there's one thing that's outside your brand in Hollywood's obsession with brands and Hollywood's obsession with repeating success uh, rather than branching out, why would you do A, a female movie, B, with actors, female actors who are not famous and when you can get anyone, we could have pulled all kinds of famous people into our movies at that point and see it's called Bridesmaids. Like nobody, what appeal does that, even if you're a woman and you know what that means, you don't like being a bridesmaid. I mean, nobody likes being a bridesmaid. So there was nothing appealing about that. And it really took uh, a lot of work to just get it going, to get a yeah. table read that would be sponsored by the studio and that, you know, like really it was, it was not easy. Huh. Um, so, so what do you say to people that are creatives out there, writers that are listening that, you know, that, that kind of, um, that, that debate within of like finding out what the marketplace is looking for and then writing into it versus I'm going to write, what really speaks to me. I had Mark Duplass on on here and he talked about kind of, you know, reverse engineering and pouring his art into what he thought could, you know, so he wouldn't, he was sustainable and he could keep, keep going. What's your, what's kind of your barometer uh, on that kind of that, that argument? I find it never works to identify a clinical, precise niche and then fill it. it, I mean, I think it works if you're in plastics manufacturing. I don't think it works if you're in the creative arts. I think, first of all, I had learned a really important lesson actually to to this point. So I'm friends with uh, somebody named Gail Berman. She used to run Fox when I moved out here. She now runs her own production company. Um, She ran Paramount for a while. She's a very accomplished person and very smart creatively. She was running Fox and she, uh, she used, I don't know if I should say this, but she, uh, I think snuck cigarettes, uh, in her parked car to, uh, uh, get away from, from the powers that be at Fox when she needed a break. And she and I would sit in her car. Sometimes she would call me and be like, I'm going to my car. And, uh, and one time we were in there and she said, um, Oh, which she was complaining about life and said, and I'm getting all these fucking Laverne and Shirley scripts. Like if one more person sends in a new Laverne and Shirley concept. And I said, Gail, I remember the meeting that we had at the beginning of the year where you said you were looking for a new Laverne and Shirley show. And she said, what? I did? And I said, yeah. And she said, yeah, but I didn't mean it literally. And then the next day we got in this script that kind of did And from that moment on, I thought, I am never going to listen to an agent who says this is what the studio wants. I'm never going to listen to the studio head who says this is what we want. Chances are either it's wrong, they already have it, uh, the mandate is changed by the time you get it in. It is a colossal waste of time. Uh, so That's great ever since that. then, yeah. I don't listen to any of it. Literally, I have agents call me all the time and be like, hey, I got some good intel for you. You know, Paramount really wants to talk to you about a, and I, it's like the volume gets turned off. I, I don't hear wah, the wah, end wah, of the wah, sentence. Wah, wah. It just, the, the sound cuts out. Yeah. I can't hear it. I think it's total bullshit. I understand that it needs to be said. I understand it's people trading. It's like, right. you know, stockbrokers in the eighties or people with slips of paper shifting them to and hand signals. And I understand it's what needs yeah. to be done on the stock trading floor because it's what your boss has taught you to do. I think it's nonsense and just a waste of time. That's really, really cool to hear with that specific story. Yeah. Like that, that I love because it's like the person who said it. Right. It's going, what? I said that? Yeah. 
I know, find it never, happens all the time. I mean, yeah. I'm lucky now to be at the level where I know the heads of these companies. So, so I get a worry, really yeah. good, yeah, first of all, I don't have to worry. I can send stuff and have conversations with decision makers, which saves a years off your life. Yeah. Um, but also uh, you get to see the irony of it. I mean, you get to actually have these conversations where you see that the buck stops with this guy and he has no idea what his team is talking about. And he has no idea what the official mandate is or the official brand. That's, yeah, that's what I find in this business a lot. It's like you're having all these conversations. If you're If you're not right up top, you're having all these conversations that it's kind of like, well, yeah, you can have that conversation. You'll feel good about yourself for having yeah. that conversation. Nobody really even knows or cares about that conversation no. you're having. You and know. honestly, it, it listen, Hollywood's an ecosystem feeding itself. You know, you need junior agents to talk to junior executives and have their lunches and come up with four writer ideas and like all that. That sort of crap should happen. It, it keeps people in their jobs. It's, it's the currency of the operation. Yeah. But it doesn't get much done. Um, it really is. And the, the challenging part, but the, the real truth of it is every time there's a network mandate, studio mandate, brand to one of these companies, it's the thing that breaks that brand that's successful. Right. Almost every time. It's the surprising thing. It's the thing they didn't see coming. It's the thing that went sideways at the last minute into an interesting place. You know, now we think of things like, I don't know, paranormal activity or, um, uh, I don't know, Borat. I'm trying to think of things that Austin Powers, you know, whatever. Like those are the most bizarre products, just these bizarro leaps of creativity Gen or Todd weirdness. Produced, yeah. uh, Gen produ- produced uh, Austin Powers and she said when they're working on it, they were like, okay, you know, Mike Myers has, they, they, they didn't, she, she remembers going, you know, it came out as a big hit and she said it was like the following, um, the following Halloween, she was out for Halloween and she saw people dressed as Austin Powers and yeah. she went, oh my God, yeah. this is, this is huge. Like it, it had already, I think, had done maybe had done well at that point, but she didn't realize the cult right. following. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah, you don't know. You just gotta fully commit to whatever you're doing. Honestly, if you do it well enough, it will get attention. It'll surprise people. You know, it has at least a good as good a a prognosis for success as the thing that imitates exactly the big thing that already happened. Those really don't work. That was going to be my next question. I think you just answered it, which is how do you tell someone who's listening, you know, how do you cut through the bullshit? And I guess what you're saying is commit and make it the best version of that thing that you envision as possible. And yeah. then at least you have a fighting chance. And, you know, chances are you're still not going to cut through the bullshit, but maybe you will at least but if wouldn't you're- wouldn't you rather strike do that, out that, yeah, with the exactly. thing that's so you that what you were just burning to do and you knew it was crazy, but you just fucking did it anyway. Yeah. That's how to strike out. Striking yeah. out on, you know, well, this is kind of like Black Panther- is just not fun. Yeah. You then sit with your failure like, yeah, I don't, don't even know why I did that in the first Th- that's place. A, well, that's what's been funny with this whole thing is that I just kind of, it was exactly that. It was like, I, I just ha- I had this idea and said, I, wanna, I just want to do this. It was, yeah. it was kind of, it was an itch that I was dying to scratch. And finally I just said, fucking got the microphone and, and hit so record. Great. And that was my, you know, 17 minutes of me rambling was the first episode. I sent it yeah. off to the sound guy and then that was that was it. And then I was that's like, oh, shit, what did I do? And but there is something about it. That's how I felt about this. I'm like, I don't, I don't really care. You know, yeah. I mean, someone's gonna like it, someone's not. And I, what I found is that people have responded, and I think it's because I, my my motives are very pure. Right. I really am just like, I want to talk to you. Yes. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? like, that's, that's the commitment I'm yeah. talking about. It's yeah. just. Being clean about it, knowing you want it, knowing you have a skill for it, and just going all in. It's riveting. I mean, that full commitment, that's what's riveting about actors. 
you know, that's what's riveting about screenplays. When you, that full commitment, nothing attracts attention. We're programmed to respond to that. That's when you stare at someone across a room is when they are screaming. It's not when they're, you know, diplomatically navigating between the three people at their table. Uh, So that is always going to be appealing. I will say, you know, I don't want to be, you know, overly romantic about it because we're all, you know, living in the modern world and trying to make money and, you know, uh, all that. Um, the, The kicker, I think, to it, uh, in addition to fully committing to, uh, I would say, t- to uniqueness, you know, w- really go for your uniqueness. But the kicker is don't be precious about that either, because that's a trap. Yeah. Is I've decided that, you know, nobody's done a barbershop quartet movie and this is going to be the first barbershop quartet movie and blah, blah, blah. And I've been researching barbershops for six years. That's lovely. Do it. But don't have that be the only thing you do. And don't think that the world's going to rise to it. It's probably not. It's worth a shot. But my big mantra and in talking to writers and and directors and and actors and, and creative people is do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Like do a range, have a, have a portfolio, you know, yeah. be smart about it. Yeah. Like Irons have your barbershop quartet nuttiness and go for it. But also, you know, be working on a pilot that you think makes sense. And also be working with your four friends to do a gorilla thing that you're going to put online and hope it catches fire. Like do all of it. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for me, the, it's the rule is three. If you're doing fewer than three things, uh, I, I once wrote a, a piece about this, I think for the Huffington Post, and uh, and I just was mandating that everyone creative should have three things going, at least. And I've had more people quote that to me and come back to me and been like, thank you. You know, that's yeah. the that's it's a, thing. a It's a tough line because you want to uh, you, you want to do that and you also want to not pull so much focus from yourself that you're not doing anything great because you're too spread you know totally. i feel like I, ha- I i actually feel like right now i've got these irons in the fire that i feel good about sometimes my problem is do i have too many irons in the yes. fire you know it can and so be. i've had to hone it and go okay these three is, is that's why that's number. why it's three i honestly yeah. i'm being a little doctrinaire about it but yeah. i really think it's something like that it's yeah. not 30 you know it's it's the equivalent of and i've had people uh come into my office and said, I'm not leaving till we have a project together. I'm like, oh, great. And they will then pitch me 40 things. Like, let me look at my notebook. Oh, I also had this idea. It's not really an idea. It's kind of a, you know, and when you get, you know, past about eight, you think, well, you don't really care about any of these things. Yeah. You know, if they're, if they're grocery items on your list, that's different than here's something the, you're passionate yeah, about. Here's yeah, here's one thing my heart is leaping towards. Here's another thing I've researched and loved. You know, I'll have that conversation with people all day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the sort of uh, scratch off lottery <laughs> approach to like, <laughs> it's not, maybe this is something. Yeah. Um, you know, those are feel like conversations you should have with yourself or your wife, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and then uh, win off from there. In the bathroom before you actually come into the office and meet with me. Right, exactly. uh, well, so I want to I want to end it because I, I want to respect your time no and, and I got to go. But we, just because we... We haven't talked about working with Ben and you're talking oh, yeah. about this thing of three things. And I think going back to the beginning of the conversation um, and and the Showtime show, uh, give me the title of it again. It's it, called Escape at Danamora. Danamora is the town, which sounds awesome. But it's I think great. of like, what a great thing for Ben because he's, he's so known for his comedy. Sure. But he's got a gravitas under that like the fact that he's now doing that and and as a director i think it's smart and i'm excited to see what he comes up with yeah but is that something that you guys are are consciously talked about doing at red hour where you said okay we're gonna we're gonna keep 
we'll have our comedy out there, but we're going to go into some serious fare and get underneath. Yes. Is that something? That yeah. was a conscious. Was that his on his part, your it part, was or everybody? Both of us. You know, I was running. So after Apatow, and then I helped Peter Chernin when he left News Corp to start his company, uh, Chernin Entertainment. And then I had my own company uh, called Invention. And what I liked doing was kind of everything. I liked an eclectic, I mean, this stuff where you hear great ideas and you help people do them. And if that's a drama, great. If that's a documentary film, great. If it's an animated comedy, great. So that's always been my approach. So when I got together with Ben, um, that was the the self-mandate that we both had. You know, Ben could do comedies till the end of his life. Um, really, he is... Somebody, I mean, to me as his partner, I think he's like one tenth comedy. Uh, the way his brain works, he has—he happens to be blessed with a bizarre ability to be funny, yeah. and it's otherworldly. And he just has it, and we'd be crazy if we didn't honor it. And it's wonderful to see. But I would say nine tenths of what he thinks about at night is not goofy comedy. It's yeah. books he's reading, it's dramas, it's stories he's read, and I'm probably similar. Um, and so the idea was always, you know, let's engineer a company that's not a comedy company. It's just a creative company. You know, we want to- happens to have comedy, If great. it's comedy, if it great. Have, you know, yeah. about half of what we're doing now is comedy. Yeah. But if we, you know, we just want to support cool directors and writers. And if that, you know, goes in a comedic way, great. If it doesn't, you know, so be it. This was just an amazing, fucked up, interesting, unique story about a prison break that Ben fell in love with. And uh, that's great. But we're also doing, you know, we do. We have an animated comedy at TBS we're working on. We have, yeah. you know, a sci-fi show at Apple that we're working on. Uh, we're turning George Saunders' novel, Civil Warland, his short story, Civil Warland, in bad decline, into a series that's sort of half comedy, half drama, half commentary, half other mathematical impossibilities. But um, it's uh, that's we've always just wanted to have a creative company that can be nimble and and go where great ideas are. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible place to work. It's really fun. It's been um, really fun. Listen, I, I I would stay, as I said, I would stay forever and talk to you, but I uh, want to let you go. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Happy to. If people want to, um, if they wanted to follow Red Hour film and or if they wanted to follow you, are there places, I don't know that you're like a social media guy, I'm imagining you're not. But I'm not for, a for big one. Or I think we have you? a really lame webpage, which I keep meaning to <laughs> make operative. Uh, but, uh, no, I think we're, we're pretty, uh, a little bit we're pretty fat. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say, I think we're trackable pretty easily. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, but, well, uh, yeah. Thank you for, for sitting down with me. I really, really I'm appreciate it. I'm happy to. It's a great show. Okay, guys. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. So many takeaways, but if I had to boil it down to the top one or two for me, I'd say it was... Don't chase the carrot when you're creating something. Scratch your own itch because what you've been told that the market is looking for could very well be bad information. And at the same time, while you need to go all in and fully commit, you should also have a few irons in the fire, but not too many. Sounds like Nikki thinks three is the magic number. Uh, I feel encouraged by Nikki. I, I hope you do too. So get to it, write that book or screenplay or whatever it is you have brewing inside you and just commit to it. If you're not subscribed on iTunes or Spotify already to 10,000 Knows, I suggest you do it so you don't miss any of these episodes. You can also scour through all the episodes at 10,000knows.com and listen there. Uh, it has a contact button if you want to email us any questions, suggestions, requests, whatever, uh, or just email info at 10,000knows.com. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word. iTunes reviews, social media posts, or just talking about these conversations around the water cooler. The more you spread the word, the more people will be encouraged to follow their dreams or to just keep going, even if it's one step a day. We all get knocked down, but it doesn't mean we have to get knocked out. See you next Friday when the next episode drops. Thanks again. 